so good to worship, so good to be together. Good morning. My name is Pastor Art Ellis Green. This morning we start a new series in the book of First Thessalonians entitled Rooted. So if you can turn there. Our world is full of messages. You have messages on your cell phone. You get them in your email. You get them in your news feed. You get them from the media. We're living the information age. You have messages coming in from work, messages from home. We've learned to sift through all these different messages and pay attention to what seems important to us and discard what we think is pretty worthless. But there's people that are trying to give you messages that you don't pay attention to. Now, I haven't flown in a while, but I have a good illustration of a message most people don't pay attention to. It's the flight attendant before you take off. First of all, she tells you what kind of airplane you're flying on, whether it's a 737 or a 777 or an Airbus 320. She tells you where the emergency exits are. Uh, she um, tells you um, these are important things to know because it's important to know where the exits are in the case of an emergency. But then she hits that part about the seatbelts. Um, she even has a sample seatbelt to show you, to show you how the seatbelt buckles. She says that you put the flat part into the buckle, right? And if you want to, you know, tighten up your belt, you kind of like pull on the strap. If you want to loosen the belt, you kind of like take the buckle and open it up that way. Somewhere in that seatbelt talk, people tune out. Maybe they've heard it before. Maybe they've know, already know how to do it. Maybe they have mastered that material. Maybe their mind is on something else. Maybe they don't like the flight. Maybe they don't like the flight attendant. But I can tell you something about that moment. People aren't listening. That's tragic because the next part is really important. <clears throat> she talks about what happens if you lose cabin pressure. Do you know what comes next? You know, right? The, um, <laughs> the masks automatically drop out of the ceiling, and then oxygen is freely dispensed, and you're instructed to take oxygen for yourself before you give it to your kids. Now, this is important because this could save somebody's life. But nobody seems to be listening to that poor, poor flight attendant. Now, I know she's required flight after flight to make that speech. And she has to say the same thing over and over again. It must get very boring to her. And, uh, but it appears to me she's lost her audience, <clears throat> which takes me to the gospel. Have we really ever heard the gospel? What if I said to you as crisply and as succinctly as you can, would you write down for me the, the gospel? Tell me what the gospel is. Now, we have a lot of gospel in our world, right? We have gospel missions, gospel ministry, gospel masculinity, mas gospel femininity, gospel reconciliation. What is the gospel? What is the gospel according to God? Paul wanted to leave it sort of without question in 1 Corinthians when he says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, that I preached to you. On more than one occasion, Paul had been with them, preaching to them the gospel. And they had heard the gospel from his own lips. And now he's come back in this letter to say to them, I want to remind you what the gospel is, which you received. You see, the gospel is spoken, and then the gospel is either received or rejected. 
you receive the gospel, and on which you have taken your stand. Your faith is based on this precious gospel. And by this gospel, he says, you are saved. You are made well. You are made whole. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that those that indeed are genuinely saved continue in their salvation. And then he begins to illustrate to us the gospel, to define it. He says, for what I received, the gospel was given to him, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. The gospel inherently then has to do with Jesus, with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And specifically, it's speaking to First, the crucifixion, the atonement, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, a testament that indeed he had died, and that on the third day he was raised from the, from the dead according to the scriptures. The gospel is very good news. You ever wonder why the first four books of the New Testament are called the gospels? The gospel according to Matthew the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John. Why don't we just call them the first four books? Because these first four books, the gospels, speak to who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus has done specifically in his death, burial, and resurrection. About a third of the gospels have to do with the atonement and the resurrection. You see, the Gospels are rooted in history. And it's very important that we deliver the message of the Gospel. John Currier was sentenced to life in prison in 1949 in Tennessee. And later he was paroled, um, he was, yeah, paroled to a work farm outside of, a, uh, outside of Nashville, Tennessee. In 1968, it was discovered that John didn't commit the crime, so his sentence was commuted. He was a free man. A letter was sent to John saying that he could go free. But he never got the letter. He never read the letter. No one actually knew what happened. He worked for another 10 years on the farm, never hearing the message that he indeed was free. Imagine that you are a prisoner living in a prison. And every day you wake up with reminders that you're in prison. You put on your orange outfit, you eat your food off the tray, and then there's a letter to you saying that you're free. You aren't a prisoner anymore. You don't have to wear the prison garb. You don't have to eat the prison food. You don't have to keep the prison routine. You don't have to stay behind bars anymore. It's been decreed that you are free. You can now leave your prison and go home to your family and start over again. Would it matter to you if you received a letter like that? Now, this could be one of the most important messages you've ever heard in your entire life. And I want you to pay very close attention to the gospel. That the just and compassionate God of the universe looked down upon our hopeless condition of sinful humanity 
and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us, to bear our sin upon a cross, to bear the wrath of God against our sin, to show his power over death and the resurrection. And all who have faith will be reconciled to God. You see, the gospel we know. We know the facts of the gospel, don't we? That Jesus was born of a virgin. That Jesus lived a sinless life. That Jesus went to a cross outside of Jerusalem. That Jesus spent six hours on that cross and he gave up his life. That he was buried in a, new man, in a tomb and on the third day he rose from the dead. We know the facts of the gospel. But we aren't saved by knowing the facts of the gospel. The question is, how is the gospel appropriated? How is the gospel taken into our hearts? How does it become the power of God unto salvation for those who believe? Good question, huh? The Barna Group measures religion in America. You probably have seen some of their studies they've done on trends in America. This is how they define being a Christian. First question, have you made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in your life today? And if the answer is yes, then you get a second follow-up question. Do you believe that you're going to heaven? If the answer is yes, Barna says you're born again. Now, nearly half of the Americans who answered those two questions, according to Barna, are born again. Now, if you dive into the research you'll find this to be true of those who say yes to those two questions. Some believe their works will get them into heaven. There must be some rule that I can follow, some box I can check, something I can do to get saved. If I'm religious enough, my good works will outweigh my bad works, and I'll get saved by my good works. And then if you go into lifestyles, you'll see, according to Barna, that Christian lifestyles are basically indistinguishable from non-Christian lifestyles. Born-again Christians listen to and watch the very same entertainment as unbelievers do. They love material possessions as much as non-Christians, and they respond to injustice the same as non-Christians do. People have taken what Barna has written and said, Christians don't believe or behave much different than non-Christians. And that conclusion is wrong. It is invalid. I think there's a lot of people who think they are born again and they are not. Their lives, their beliefs, their behaviors testify they are not. But Barna says they're born again because they say they believe in Jesus and believe they're going to heaven. So what does it mean to be born again? What happens when you are born again? Well, it must go beyond intellectual belief because you can sit in a room like this and say, I believe the stuff of the gospel and still not be born again. The gospel has not been appropriated to your heart, you see. You may have signed a card or had a conversation and are banking your eternal salvation on the card you signed or the conversation you had or even the prayer you made. 
So what does it mean to be born again? I think that God wants to reveal to us our need, our need for salvation. I believe that America needs to rediscover again what it means to be born again. I remember when I was just 21 years old, I was living with a great sense of emptiness. Maybe today you feel that same emptiness. I tried filling that emptiness with all kinds of achievements. When I did well, I felt proud. But when I didn't, I felt worthless. My, my value was based on my performance and what people said of me. And I could be crushed by critical comments. I learned that it was not so much what I achieved, but what I received that mattered. You see, what God wanted to give me was a new life. God wanted to give me grace and mercy. God wanted to give me freedom. So, with that, let's turn to this amazing book of 1 Thessalonians and see what God would say to us through this book. Let's go back now 2,000 years to the town of Thessalonica, a town of about 200,000 people, the capital city of Macedonia. The reason Paul went there was that God gave him a vision. There's a map I'd like to show you of the ancient world. This is Paul's second missionary journey. He was in a little city called Troas there on the edge of the Aegean Sea. He was praying about his direction as to which way he should go, back to Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia. And God gave him a vision of a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And Paul concluded that this was indeed the path. This was the direction I should go. So he boarded a ship and he sailed across the Aegean and he came to the little town of Philippi. Philippi was the first place he came to in Macedonia. It was there that Paul wanted to find a synagogue. So he went out on a Sabbath to look for those worshiping in the synagogue, and there was none. There was only a river. And there was a woman there by the name of Lydia, Acts chapter 16. And Lydia was a worshiper of God, and she heard the words of Paul, and God opened her heart, and she believed. And Lydia was the first convert in Philippi. And then there was a little slave girl was telling people's fortunes. And she said, these are men of God who are telling you how to get saved. And Paul got very annoyed with her and cast the demon out of her and said, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out. Well, she was set free, but her slave owners didn't like it, and they started a riot. And Paul was arrested, and he was beaten, and he was thrown into jail, he and Silas. And from that jail cell, he began to sing. He began to praise God, he began to worship. And God sent an earthquake at Philippi, and the jail popped open, and this um, chains fell off, and the j jailer was about to kill himself, and Paul says, don't kill yourself, we're all here, and the sick jailer said, well, what must I do to be saved, and Paul said, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household, and that very night, the jailer was saved in his household, and he washed Paul's wounds, and he was baptized, and then Paul was released out of the city. What happened then was that Paul left Philippi and he went down through those two little towns, Amphipolis and Apollina, and came to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the largest city in all of Macedonia, about 200,000 people. 
And once again, Paul was looking for a synagogue in order to worship. And he came to the synagogue for three consecutive Sabbaths. And there he reasoned with the Jews. He dialogued with them. He explained to them the gospel. He preached to them. The people heard the gospel for the first time. And the people believed, and the church was born at Thessalonica. Again, Paul was run out of town, Acts chapter 17. And uh, he went on down to Athens, and then he went to Corinth. And from Corinth, Paul sent back Paul, um, Silas, and Timothy to check on the believers at Thessalonica. What you have now is, after that conversation, Paul writes a letter a few months after being in Thessalonica to the believers there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. The letter begins with the author's names, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Jesus sent them out two by two, and Paul went out in a team. He wasn't trying to win the city by himself. He and Silas headed out together in that second missionary journey, and they picked up Timothy in the town of Lystra, and he became Paul's son in the faith. Let me say this. Discipleship runs all the way through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul would write to Timothy and say, the things you've heard from me, things you received of me, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. You see, what Paul was doing was reproducing himself. And we have a vision here to be disciples who make disciples who live in love like Jesus. And we find that from the very get-go of Thessalonians, that that's what he's doing with the church and that's what he's doing with his team. Now to the audience of the team, the church of Thessalonica. To the church of the Thessalonians, Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. The church is the called out ones. Some of the reasons why I've chosen 1 Thessalonians is that the town and people of Thessalonica resemble our town and people. First off, it was the capital city of Macedonia, and we sit here in the county seat of Frederick County in Frederick, Maryland. Thessalonica was a bustling city of 200,000, and there's slightly more than that in our county here in Frederick County. And the city was right on the Ignatian Way. That was a 20-foot-wide road that ran from Rome all the way to Istanbul, an 800-mile road. It was the way that commerce was done. They took the Ignatian Road. And we sit 40 miles away from Baltimore. We're to the west of Baltimore and 40 miles north of Washington. And everybody has passed at least once in their life through Frederick. And the city was known for its diversity. It had a harbor with a, a lot of, a lot of um, commerce there. And there were different nationalities. But the primary parallel is Paul writing to people he loved trying to help them get rooted in the faith. This is what we believe is the first of Paul's epistles. And the theme of the book is how to live the Christian life in very difficult times. And the first thing he does in the book is he conveys grace and peace to them. He's praying God's favor over them. He's praying God's wholeness and wellness over them. He's praying to a church that's facing very difficult times the grace of God, God's undeserved favor, and God's peace over them, his wholeness and wellness. Then verse 2. 
He says, we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. Paul was a man of prayer, and he and his team prayed much for the church. Susanna Wesley, the mother of 17, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, she had 17 children, and she was asked, which of my 17 do you love the most? Now, that's a tough question for a mother to answer, right? Like, which of your children do you love the most? And she said, the one I love the most is the one who's most sick until they are most well. And the second one I love the most is the one who's most away until they're most home. Paul and his team carried this church in their hearts, and they prayed for their spiritual health and their well-being. Now, it's not to say that everybody in the church loved Paul. Silas and Timothy, when they visited, learned that there were accusations against Paul. And we're going to hear them next week in chapter 2. I hope you can read ahead to see what they were saying about the Apostle Paul and his team. They were attacking his character, his integrity. And it's not to say that everybody in the church had moral impeccability. Silas and Timothy reported that some of them were crossing lines. So Paul addressed the topic of purity in chapter 4. And it's not as if they had all their doctrine worked out either because he would speak to them about the second coming in chapters 4 and 5. What's interesting to me about 1 Thessalonians is every chapter speaks to the second coming at the very end. He says, I, we continue to remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Now we know we're not saved by our person, our work. We are saved by the person and work of Jesus Christ. But once we are saved, there is plenty of work for us to do. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And they began to work very faithfully. Secondly, he remembered their labors prompted by love. Love is the great motivator. The love for one's children prompts a mother to sacrifice. The love for one's patients prompts a dentist or a doctor to practice. The love for one's customers makes a restaurant great. You see, love is the great motivator. And we remember your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They believed that Jesus was coming back. They didn't know when he was coming, but they believed he could come at any time. Verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, many stumble over the doctrine of election. It seems from a human perspective that we have free will and we get to make choices whether we become a believer if, as if it's all up to us. But the biblical narrative is that before we choose God, God chooses us. This verse would teach us that love and election are tied together. Isn't it true that you love the people you choose and you choose the people you love? So God's love is tied into God's election. You see, we don't have to reconcile human responsibility and divine sovereignty. I believe the entrance to heaven says, whosoever, may, whoever, whosoever will may enter here. But on the back side of the entrance, it says, chosen from the foundation of the world. You see, the love of God and the choice of God are tied together in verse number four. 
But the place I want you to camp upon is verses 5 and following. We just went through the introduction. Look at verse 5. It reads, Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Our gospel. Let's stop right there. Paul didn't invent the gospel. The gospel was not something he created. The gospel was something that he was given. He received revelation from God. You see, the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. Inherent in the gospel is power. You don't have to add to the gospel. You surely don't have to water down the gospel. What you need to do is you need to release the gospel. You see, our gospel came to you not only with words, not only what we spoke, but also with the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus said, in that day, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Well, the Holy Spirit had come upon Paul, and now he was going to testify to what he knew to be true, the gospel. He starts the letter of Romans with these words, Paul, a servant, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, that is one with authority, set apart, consecrated, ordained by God. Why? For the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God. You see, the gospel is not to be tampered with. The gospel is not to be um, changed or diluted. The gospel is not to be um, messed with. Because where does the gospel come from? The gospel comes from God, and it is basic good news. You see, the gospel includes the atonement and the resurrection. Without the atonement, you don't have the gospel. Without the resurrection, you don't have the gospel. And Paul is saying our gospel came to you with power. You know, there's times when you're speaking the gospel, and the power of God is flowing through you. Your thoughts become clear and your words articulate and the audience is with you. That's what Paul's describing is that the Holy Spirit was empowering him. He was speaking as a man with conviction. He was absolutely convinced of the truth of the gospel. Are you absolutely convinced of the truth of the gospel? Because it will change you. It will change you. You see, secondly, we have a choice as to whether we receive the gospel. The people then and now have a choice, a choice as to whether we'll agree with God about the condition of all humanity. We have a choice to believe whether we believe the Bible, what it says about us is true, what is our true condition. So I'd like to give you a biblical portrait of our life before Christ. You ready? Here we go. <laughs> it's not a pretty picture. We are, the Bible describes us as morally evil. Now, you may take offense that the Bible claims that we are morally evil. If I had said we are sinful or we make bad choices, you might not take offense. But would you agree that there's evil in our world? There's people that traffic young women. That's evil. There's people that sell drugs to our kids. That's evil. There's people that plot terrorist attacks. That's evil. Evil is out there. Would you agree there's evil in our country? 
Some would. There's hatred, injustice, division, public officials that lie, great distrust. There's much evil in our country. But how about on a personal level? Would you agree that there's evil in your own heart? That there's evil desire for revenge when someone does you wrong? There's an evil desire to gossip, to kind of spread information about somebody? Evil desire of greed to want what's not yours? The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth was, and every inclination of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil all the time. That was God's indictment on humanity before the flood. And what did Jesus have to say about humanity? Jesus was teaching his disciples about prayer. And he said in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I'm going with Jesus on this one. He sized us up. He knows what's in our heart. And he's saying it's not all good inside of us. Paul said, nothing good lives in my flesh. If there's any good inside of me, it's because God put it there. First off, we are morally evil. Secondly, we are spiritually sick and we need a doctor. Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners at Matthew's house. You know, Matthew was the tax collector himself and he invited these guys to his house. And the Pharisees saw this and said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with them, these tax collectors and sinners and scum? Jesus said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus knew that there is a terminal malignant disease far weightier than any physical disease. You know, we all wrestle with COVID, our own vulnerability, our own mortality. We wear our masks. We wear, we social distance, we cleanse our hands. But there's something greater than COVID, you know. We can get COVID and recover from COVID or die from COVID, and then we face God. And what Jesus' diagnosis of the human race is, is that we are spiritually sick and we need a doctor. It gets worse. We are slaves to sin. Romans 6.16. You are slaves to the one you obey. Jesus is speaking to people who knew slavery, and every slave has a master. Some slaves worked out in the field. Some slaves worked inside the house. The master tells the slave what to do, where to do it, how often, and when. The slave does what the master says. You want somebody's approval, and you'll do anything to get it. You're a slave. You want to get numb on alcohol, and you'll do anything to get it. You are a slave. You want to keep up with the news, and you'll do anything to hear it. You're a slave. A master is something that dominates your life. A slave master isn't looking out for you. A slave master doesn't care about your well-being. It wants to control your life and take advantage of you and steal your life. You don't have to be a slave to sin. Sin is the worst kind of master because it will take you where you don't want to go and it will make you pay much more than you want to pay. 
we are slaves to sin. And fourth, we are blinded to the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. If anybody knew about blindness, Paul could speak to it very, very well. On the road to Damascus, and by the way, that could be a prayer of yours. Lord, please demask us. My only joke, sorry. <laughs> Paul on the road to Damascus, he saw a bright light. Who are you? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. What do you want me to do? He wants, I want you to go to Damascus. And there he was blind for three days. And a guy named Ananias came and prayed over him. Lord, open his eyes. And something like scales fell from his eyes. Do you know how it is in a theater? Remember going to the theater? You come and take your seat and the lights are up and they start the previews, which you hate, and then they lower the lights. And before long, there's darkness in the room. And then the lights come on and you shutter your eyes. Well, there's plenty of darkness in our world, right? He's saying we're blinded to the truth. We are deceived. Fifth, we are lovers of darkness. Lovers of darkness. John 3, 19 says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love their darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. I used to say to my kids, I would say to your kids, that nothing good happens after midnight. Jesus is the light. He is the truth. He has come to shine light on our darkness. Some will come out of the darkness into the light, and some will stay in the darkness. Why? Because we are lovers of the darkness. We love the darkness instead of the light because our deeds are evil. And sixth, we are children of wrath. The culmination of all these portraits is that we are people deserving the judgment of God. We are, we are deserving of the wrath of God. God wishes that none would ever perish, that all come to repentance. God desires all to be saved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes should not perish. But the truth is that the person who does not believe will face the judgment of God. And seventh, we are spiritually dead. We are under the sentence of physical, spiritual, and eternal death. This is the portrait of every person without Christ. This is what you were, or this is what you are. How is it possible for a morally evil person to choose good? How is it possible for a sick person to make themselves well? How is it possible for a slave to set themselves free? How is it possible for a blind person to give sight to their eyes? How is it possible to appease the wrath of God? How is it possible to be dead and unresponsive to God and come alive? We cannot manufacture this. The Spirit of God must do this. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus and to us, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born of the Spirit, you will never see the Spirit of God, born of water and spirit. And that is what was happening to this church. 
in Thessalonica, Paul was bringing the gospel to people who were spiritually dead, and God was breathing life into them. There was a new power and surge going through them. You see, the gospel, when it's received, it will change us. The gospel came with power, and they sat under anointed preaching, and they were convinced that what he was saying was true, and they trusted in the gospel. Look what happened, verse 6. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. They became imitators of the person of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate example for us to follow. You know, Scripture says that Jesus humbled himself. When we follow his example, we humble ourselves. Jesus incarnated himself. When we follow his example, we incarnate his love. Jesus Christ served. When we, when we follow his example, we serve one another. And Jesus became obedient to, tr- to death. When we follow his example, we become obedient. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross every day and follow me. The Christian life is about giving up in order to find the ultimate treasure. And what we gain is much more than we ever lose because we gain the sweet fellowship with God, even in the midst of suffering. Notice that they were suffering affliction, just like you were going through affliction, but they experienced great joy. It was a testament that the Holy Spirit was in their lives. And then look at verse number 9 and 10. It says, um, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. These Greek cities were full of idols, and each city had its patron god and goddesses. Athens had Athena. Ephesus had Epaphrodite. Now we think of idols, we think of these people that were worshiping idols. An idol starts out as something good, something we become attached to, and gradually the idol becomes something that takes over. A food can become an idol. Drink can become an idol. Sex can become an idol. Sports can become an idol. One's career can become an idol. Politics can become one's idol. An idol is a good thing that elevates to become a God thing, and that's a bad thing. And what was happening in this city was people were seeing their idols of what they were worshiping. They were turning from their idols, and they were turning to God and becoming servants of God. You see, the gospel will change you. When it's received, the gospel changes us. The first operation of the Spirit is to bring within us repentance. The second operation of the Spirit is the birth faith. You see, when you get connected to the living God, you turn away from the worthless stuff to turn to him who is life itself. Patrick Reynolds is an activist for the American Lung Association. He goes around telling people that basically they shouldn't smoke. You know who his father, his grandfather was? Was R.J. Reynolds. You know who R.J. Reynolds was? R.J. Reynolds was the um, 
owner and CEO of the second largest tobacco company in America. His own father died of lung cancer. He left the business and his vast fortune. He doesn't take any money for his speeches, but he goes around telling people that smoking killed my father. And he says, why do you want to do this? He says, I want to make up for all the damage my family has done. What has he done? He has repented. You see, what happened in this amazing church in Thessalonica was the people were generally repenting of their sin and turning in faith to Jesus. You see, the gospel changes us because now we have a brand new position. You ready for the good news? We acquire a new nature. If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Before we are helpless in the face of temptation. We sinned because it was our nature. Now we get a new nature. We see life so differently. The great physician makes our souls well. You see, the Spirit applies what Jesus did in his crucifixion and resurrection. Now I have been crucified with Christ. My old life is done with. I have a new life in Christ, and the Spirit of God lives inside of me. He makes me well, and we find freedom. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You begin to understand your position, your identity, and the freedom you have in Christ. You're not a slave anymore to people's opinions, or perfectionism, or fear of failure, or criticism. You become free, and your eyes become open to the truth. Where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. And you begin to love the light, and you enter eternal life, and you become alive, and you become cleansed and forgiven. Don't you want to become born again? Don't you? Don't you want to see everybody in this community have a conversion experience? You see, Paul, Silas, Timothy came in faith to this city, believing God had people for them in the city. And I believe there are people in this city, on your street, at your business, that need to know Jesus. And when we get changed, forth, we can't keep it to ourselves. It says in verse 8, So you became a model of all the believers, and the Lord's message rang out from you in Macedonia and Achaia. They just were on fire. They were pumped up. Some people say, well, it's the preacher's job to tell people, the people, the good news. Well, this tells us that the whole church got on board with the message. They sounded forth. They sounded like a trumpet. They, uh, Kenneth Weiss translating this says, they sounded forth the trumpet in the mountains and valleys that wave after wave made proclamation. They were saved souls seeking to see others' souls saved. Question is, I'll close with this. How do we respond to the gospel? Do we, first of all, isolate? Some who say isolate say, I need to get out of the world. I'll just buy a house in the hills and stock it with food and just stay in the hills. Some say we need to insulate. I don't need to read what's happening in the world. I just need to insulate. I need to get around just Christians and 
Never talk to non-Christians. Some say we need to imitate the world. The only way we get to be, the only way we get to reach people is become like them. I'll wear what they wear. I'll listen to what they listen to. I'll watch what they watch. I'll share their values. Fourth option is vegetate. Just become apathetic, right? I know people are going to hell, but it doesn't really bother me too much. I'll just watch the next TV show. But the last strategy is that of penetrate. That we are called to take this gospel and go into this world and tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, evangelism is taking the initiative and the power of the Holy Spirit to tell somebody the good news who needs to hear it and leaving the results to God. God wants to use you to carry this good news. But first of all, we have to receive the good news. Let's pray. Father, much has been coming this morning as we begin this series in Thessalonians. You want to speak to your church. You want to really wake us up. You really want us, Lord, to have a firsthand experience with you, an encounter with you. You want us to know how deeply we are loved, loved more than we could ever imagine, but how deeply fallen we are and humanity is and how we need each one to be saved. We need to be born again. We need a fresh start. We need a do-over. We need our sins cleared away. We need them atoned for because we carry the heavy weight of sin. Guilt and shame, regret are things that we often feel. We look upon our past and we um, just feel a heaviness. We feel an emptiness. We look at our present, we feel stress. We feel overwhelmed. So God, I would pray by the working of your spirit that you would draw people to yourself, Jesus. That they would see you high and lifted up and be drawn to you, Jesus, upon a cross. And believe that that cross was for them, that you took our place on a cross. And then you were laid in a tomb. And on the third day, you were raised up from the dead, victorious over death. Our greatest enemy has been conquered. If you're not really sure about where you stand with all of this, I want you to make it sure this morning by confessing to God where you are. That you're searching trying to find him, you're seeking after him, you're hearing his voice, this drawing of the spirit, sin's been tugging at you, it's been nagging you, but you want to confess it, just say, Lord, I confess I'm a sinner, I've done wrong. I confess that Jesus Christ took my place on a cross, just say that to him, Lord, I confess that you took my place on a cross, you died for my sin, you were pierced for my transgressions that you were laid in a tomb and that you rose victoriously from the grave, that you were alive, that you have conquered death. Just say that, Lord, I believe that you rose from the dead. And Lord, I want to follow you all the days of my life. I want you to put your spirit inside of me and I want to, I want to be your disciple. I just want to follow you, Lord, each step of the way. So God, lead me and help me to get connected with other Christians and get into your word and really understand this gospel and what it says to me. Lord, this is my prayer. I pray in Jesus' name.